Welcome to the inaugural episode of the podcast, Failure Junkies. In America, we often fall under the assumption that successful people are prodigies, creative genii, and larger-than-life souls who have staked their claim in the world through the simple weight of their awesomeness. We see the results of meteoric success, Fortune 500 companies, personal brands, and global influence, and assume these magical individuals possess an extra measure of stardust. They are the great ones, we think, whose Midas touch carried them to heights us normal folk could never hope to achieve. Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, the Wright brothers, Amelia Earhart, Henry Ford, Mother Teresa, Steve Jobs, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, The list goes on and on and on. We can't imagine placing ourselves in their category because we know how weak we are. So prone to self-sabotage, so idiotic, so talentless, so insecure. We aren't surprised when awesome people are awesome because the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. They've shown the world who they are and what they can do. It was only a matter of time, we think. Their fate was guaranteed. But I propose a different story, very different. What if I told you that most, if not all, individuals famous for achievement were actually professional failures? When we studied history as kids, we learned who invented flight, who won the Civil War, who created the first functional incandescent light bulb, but we rarely heard about how they got there. Not really. We might have seen snippets of blood, sweat, and tears, but we still view these people as quintessential heroes destined for greatness. But that's simply not the case. It's just not. Before we move on, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Robert Fuller, and this podcast was born through my almost obsessive fixation on failure. How much failure was involved in history's account of success? Were these men and women we know by heart really, in essence, any different than the rest of us? Or did they simply know something we don't? I believe the key difference was their perspective on failure. Go down the list one by one and you'll see story after story of pitfalls and grievous dead ends, career-ending mistakes, and total disasters. Yet somehow, out of the ashes of their failure, they rose like phoenixes and kept right on going. You might think that they had a penchant for suffering. Why did they endure such pain? Why didn't they turn tail and run back to the comparative safety and ease of a lesser life? Because I believe they were failure junkies. They just couldn't get enough. Let the following stories open your eyes to a grand new world of freedom. Freedom to fail. Freedom to fall flat on your faces and look like total idiots for all the world to see. If we delve deeper into the stories of our heroes, we will find that true success is merely a string of failures linked together by tenacity. Final note before we continue. This podcast is a collection of stories. It will take you into the nitty-gritty of real-life struggle and adversity, serial failure, and ultimate victory. My desire as you walk this hall of failure, so to speak, is for you to rub shoulders with those who have gone before. I want you to see how their lives were not tied up in neat little bows or their success in automatic assumption. I want you to feel the struggle and gain courage for your own journey and whatever mountains stand in your way. Now, let's get to it.
old man's life was over. At least that's what it felt like. He was 65 years old, divorced, remarried, but broke as a church mouse. Having been forced into retirement, he'd just received his first social security check from the government. When he opened the envelope and looked down at the amount, he couldn't help but sink into despair. While other men his age were kicking back with ample savings after long, steady careers, most of the money to his name was written out on that check. A hundred and five dollars. That was it. After a lifetime of pining for success, decades of grueling work, and so many failures he likely found it hard to keep count, all he had to show for it was a handout from Uncle Sam hardly sufficient to take care of himself or his family. How in the world had this happened? Could he have done anything different? Only history would tell. Harlan David was born on September 9, 1890, into an average American family. But difficulties were soon to come calling. His father died when he was four years old, forcing him to learn to cook and look after his siblings while his mother worked long hours to support the family, at times spending days away from home. It's hard to imagine this little boy hunkered over a stove, preparing food for his brothers and sisters, but he did that very thing for years, learning how to make dishes on his own, however the meager budget allowed. When his mother finally showed up with a new suitor and a proposal of marriage, Harlan likely imagined things would return to normal, at least partially so. Their beloved mother would be home again, and he could resume a typical childhood of carefree games and sunny days in the schoolyard. But such was not to be. For it wasn't long after the wedding vows were made that he realized he didn't get along with his stepdad. Over several years of miserable struggle, he finally had enough and moved out to make it on his own at 13 years old. As luck would have it, he found work painting carriages in Indianapolis, eking out enough of a living for room and board, which was all he could really ask for at the time a considerably better existence than the vagabonds on the street. At 14, he became a farmhand, then a streetcar conductor, gaining experience and street smarts all along the way. Eventually, however, perhaps under the spell of wanderlust so common among adolescents of the time, he lied about his age and joined the army, serving several months in the sultry jungles of Cuba. But even this wild dream of exotic lands drew to a rather expedient close. After being honorably discharged, he returned to the States and got a job cleaning ash pans from trains of the Northern Alabama Railroad. This would eventually prove his longest-held profession to date, hopping around to different railroad companies with various grueling roles for years. During this time, he got married, had a child, and maybe for the first time, he felt a twinge of the good life, watching his growing toddler in the arms of his young bride. But tragedy was never far off, for soon after, the boy would die from a tonsil infection. Rather than allowing his agonizing grief to pull him into despair, he set his mind to better things, hoping to improve his situation and escape the railroad industry altogether. He started studying law by correspondence, poring over stacks of books on his kitchen table long into the night after already exhausting days at work. He found he liked to learn, but the brutal pace and lack of sleep wore him down to a nub. His exhaustion soon erupted into a workplace brawl, forcing his boss to let him go. Now he was not only weary beyond description, he was unemployed and destitute. With no other option at hand, his wife and remaining children moved in with her mother. 
He worked for another railroad until finishing his law degree and then moved to Little Rock, Arkansas to attempt a fledgling career as an attorney. By then, everything was looking up for young Harland. The heat and sweat and grime of railroad work was replaced by the suits and study and gentlemanly arguments of the courtroom. For three years he worked, earning enough money to finally move his family to Little Rock. They united with much hope for the future. Until one day, everything shattered in a million pieces. When this rookie attorney got into a courtroom brawl with his own client. And just like that, his legal career was finished. No court would accept him and no potential client with half a brain would hire the man. Rejected and dejected, he moved in with his mom in Henryville, Pennsylvania, while his wife and children returned to her family once again. Everything had fallen apart. All his hopes, all his plans, all he knew to do then was return to the railroad, back to ash and sweat and aching bones. But all was not over. In 1916, at 26 years old, he saved enough money to move with his family to Jeffersonville to sell life insurance for Prudential. It wasn't as interesting as lawyer work, but at least he was off the train yard. But, of course, it wasn't to last. He was fired for insubordination. A second try at selling insurance landed him at Mutual Benefit of New Jersey. This gig paid the bills long enough for his next dream to come alive. Ferry boats. In 1920, he started a ferryboat company, running commuters over the Ohio River between bustling ports. The demand for this service was immediate and bursting at the seams. Finally seeing promise for success, but knowing he couldn't scale it up on his own, he searched out and found enough investors to build the business, though he now took a minority share of its holdings. That was fine with him. This new endeavor of ferry running brought in more money than he had ever seen in his life. In 1922, he took a job as Secretary of the Chamber of Commerce in Columbus, Indiana. Finally, he had the financial success and public notoriety he'd longed for over all his years of struggle. However, within a year of taking the job, he resigned, admitting he was really never good at the job. Once this happened, he grew a bit tired of the ferryboat business and decided to cash in on his holdings, walking away with a handsome $22,000 in cash, which is about $309,000 in today's dollars. His next dream? Lights. Acetylene lamps, to be precise. Pouring almost all his new bounty of cash into the venture, things seemed more than likely to succeed. Until, that is, Delco produced the electric lamp and turned the illumination industry on its head. And just like that, lickety-split, Harlan's company went belly up. All he had gained to that point, poof, into nothing. Dejected yet again, he moved to Winchester, Kentucky to work for Michelin Tire Company. That is, until he got fired in 1924. He became a manager of a gas station in Nicholasville, Kentucky. That is, until it closed in 1930 with the arrival of the Great Depression. He started another gas station, even began cooking for customers with delicious southern fare on the menu. A local food critic hailed his efforts. Things were finally becoming just a little bit easier. Until, that is, he got into a literal shootout with a local competitor who ended up killing one of Harlan's co-workers. This guy could not get a break. By then, he had enough money to buy a hotel in Asheville, North Carolina in 1939. But, of course, it burned down to a pile of smoking ash five months later. 
He rebuilt it into a motel with a large restaurant attached, where he soon perfected several of his unique recipes. In less than a year, however, as World War II took over the globe, business slowed to a trickle and the money dried up. He closed up shop, shuttered its doors, and wondered what the heck to do now. During the war years, too old by then to fight, he became a cafeteria worker for the government, serving in a few different cities as assistant manager and manager until the axis fell and the world returned to normal. By then, he knew he couldn't go back to the railroad. He couldn't go back to the law. He wouldn't go back to ferry boats. So he decided to try his hand once again at the restaurant business. He started franchising his recipes to various restaurants, which saw profits triple in just a few months. This gave him the courage to open up yet another food joint in a nearby town. Then a large highway was built through the city, diverting traffic away from his restaurant. Sales sank and sank and sank until, once again, he closed up shop, shuttered its doors, and walked away. And now he was staring at that $105 check all the money he had in the world. While many men his age were already retired and living their golden years with their grandchildren, he had nothing but a long list of failures and dead ends that would send most men running for the hills. But he did have his cooking, his secret recipes, his fried chicken. There was that. With the urging of his wife and with starvation gnawing at his heels, he began selling his secret recipe of 11 herbs and spices with gusto, if not desperation, often sleeping in the back of his car as he traveled from state to state and city after city, cooking for potential customers and trying to spread the word. And then, drumroll please, things began to take off for the man. More and more people adopted his methods, paying him for every piece of chicken sold. He opened his own restaurant, established a company headquarters, and started franchising restaurants with exponentially increasing numbers. And so, Kentucky Fried Chicken was born. He even trademarked the phrase, finger-licking good, in 1963. Having been commissioned a Kentucky colonel by the governor of the state a few years earlier, it was only natural what he was to be called. Harlan David Sanders would now be known as Colonel Sanders. KFC became one of the first fast food chains to go international, steadily spreading all over the globe. In 1964, at 73 years old, Colonel Sanders sold his booming business for $15.4 of today's dollars, while still gaining franchise and speaking fees for the rest of his days. In the final years of his life, he turned to God, befriending Billy Graham and getting baptized in the actual Jordan River of the Holy Land. He used his vast wealth to fund charities long after his death, establishing trusts that operate to this day. And that's the story of how a Kentucky Fried Failure changed the world. In the earlier part of my professional career, I was on staff at my church as a worship leader, primarily for the weekly college service. For a while there, I doubled as a church janitor as well, which meant I was either leading people in worship or cleaning the toilets they pooped in. I think it's safe to say church janitors are nigh to sainthood, but I digress. That's actually not the point of this story. This story is about my journey, short though it be, in becoming a songwriter or rather how I wrote my one really good song. 
One of my main jobs as a worship leader at my church was finding good songs to use in worship services. Problem was, the list of great songs was small. Woefully short when you're thinking about all those services you need to lead. I've been guilty on more than one occasion of beating a good song to musical death if I found it worked before. And so, I decided to pen my own. Suffice it to say, the results of my initial efforts were an embarrassment. I'd pick out a chord progression, hum out a melody and some lyrics, then realize in a sudden, undeniable eureka that the song was absolute garbage. My singing was nice, my guitar playing tolerable, but in songwriting, talented, I was not. To be honest, this was pretty depressing. Such an ability would be so incredibly convenient for my job. So what's a worship leader to do? Well, I eventually decided to attend a worship songwriters conference. Pretty niche, I know, but I was desperate. Now, I don't remember much from this event, but there is one thing a certain speaker said that has stayed with me ever since. It's actually informed much of my creative life, in songwriting or otherwise. This is what he said. For every song I write that works, there are 80 bad songs. You can't write great stuff without writing junk. You have to be okay with failure in the process. This might be a smidge paraphrased, but that's the gist of what he said. The moment I heard these words, it was like a hundred pounds lifted off my shoulders. Be okay with failure? Sounds good, because I've already got plenty. It was summer at the time, and I decided to do a creative experiment. I would spend an entire month writing as many songs as I could, then see what happened. The next four weeks, I lived like I was in a real-life musical, songs constantly flowing from my lips. Fast ones, slow ones, fun ones, deep ones. I'd sing every note and lyric into my cell phone's recorder and try my hardest to scratch out the music on paper at the end of the day. Now, don't be deceived here. Some of these songs were piles of odorous poo, barely singable. But they were worship, pure and simple, which means God got glory and took my tunes to heart like a father takes a young child's crayon portrait, which looks like it was sketched by a monkey. And you know... This process was fun, really fun, creating without thought of perfection or rejection. I wasn't writing for other people. I was singing my heart out to God. When I ended my creative blitz with four or five somewhat decent songs out of dozens upon dozens of bad ones, I took a deep breath of courage and showed them to the main worship pastor at our church, a crazy-haired creative named James Mark, who had taught me most of what I knew about worship leading. He listened graciously in his office as I cranked through each song, commenting little, besides encouraging me that I was actually writing, which, looking back now, was more like giving an E for effort than anything else. But he wasn't discouraging, so that was good. And then, I played the final song, one I had written on a recent trip to Arkansas while my brothers, dad, and myself built an elevated deer stand. I had hardly finished the chorus when his face lit up, his eyes going wide. Dude, he said, there's something on that song. It wasn't quite finished, only had a chord progression, a verse, and most of a chorus, but he asked if we could finish the song together. I obliged, curious about the prospect of collaboration. Within a couple days, we felt we'd almost finished, though we knew it still needed a second verse and a bridge. I ended up writing the bridge in a few seconds one afternoon at work, but the second verse came weeks later, penned fully by James Mark, while my wife and I were in the hospital with our sickly newborn who was fighting for his life. The words he wrote spoke directly to our trial. Son of man, great I am, healing power is in your hand. Risen one, it is done. Sin and death 
are overcome. I tear up to this day at that verse, for my son was healed soon after and has been perfectly healthy ever since. The song was finally finished. And that's how Jesus is the Lord came to be. From the moment we started leading this song in services, it connected with people. It stirred hearts for God. And to see where it's gone over the years has been one of the most encouraging and mind-blowing things to me. It's been recorded on dozens of worship albums. It's been used by tiny little country churches, mega churches with giant robed choirs and orchestras. A punk band in Germany did a rendition. And there's even a sign language video on YouTube of the song. My favorite, though, is seeing clips of kids singing the song with hand motions. God has been glorified, and there's nothing greater than that. You know, looking back, I can't help but chuckle over all those terrible songs I wrote in the process and how it all began in part with my willingness to fail. Failure Junkies is produced by 963 Media, a nonprofit production company committed to telling the stories of God. If you'd like to help us continue to tell more stories of fruitful failure, consider making a donation at 963media.org. That's the numbers, 963media.org. All donations are tax deductible. We want to truly thank you for listening, and please subscribe and leave us a review. Tell your friends and family and whoever else about Failure Junkies. The more folks who learn about the power of failure, the better. Also, check out our sister podcast, Growing Guts, which is all about conquering fear. God bless and God speed. Oh, no,